0: Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Good
1: afternoon everybody and welcome to this uh, lunchtime event on behaviour change and climate change. Uh, my name is Nick Pierce. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the University of Bath and Director of the Institute for uh, Policy Research and I'm going to be chairing uh, the lunchtime event today. I'm very pleased to be able to do so. Uh, it's the, obviously the opening this week um, as we speak of COP27 in Egypt. Um, major and important milestone in climate diplomacy, uh, addressing the challenges we face. Already, you know, huge arguments taking place uh, at, at that COP um, about the actions needed to take to keep us within a chance of staying at one point five degrees uh, warming in our planet. Today, we're going to look particularly at the contribution that can be made uh, by behaviour change by individuals, by businesses, by households, and um, by communities. So, thinking about how we mobilise. Change in our communities, as well as the big structural, regulatory, institutional changes that are being uh, discussed at COP, but thinking how we how those take place alongside the changes that we make in our communities, in our businesses, uh, in our local environments. Uh, and we've got um, four speakers for you today. We're we're as uh, so we're fr- framing and hinging this discussion off uh, a recent House of Lords Environment and Climate Change Committee report on uh, behaviour change, mobilising action on climate change and environment and the behaviour change elements of that, recently published. And our first speaker is Baroness Kate uh, Parmenter, who chairs uh, that committee in the House of Lords, led the inquiry, um, and uh, she'll be speaking uh, about the report, about what, was, what, what the Lords Committee was uh, uh, attempting to address there. She's got a significant policy interest in this area, energy and the environment, Uh, agriculture, animals, food, rural affairs as well, and also on mental health. So uh, very pleased in a minute to to ask Kate to kick us off. Uh, She'll be followed by Professor Lorraine Whitmarsh, my colleague at the University of Bath, where she is the Director of the Centre for Climate Change and Social Transformations. And she is an environmental psychologist uh, specialising in perceptions and behaviour in relation to climate change, energy and transport. And Lorraine was a special advisor to the uh, inquiry, to the Law's inquiry that led to the committee report uh, I just mentioned. Uh, She she will be followed followed by Hira Khan-Adhwan from the organisation Possible, where she heads up its work on uh, car-free cities, seeking to mobilise grassroots commitments in communities to um, making cars obsolete in our cities, accelerating the move to a zero-carbon Britain. Um, Possible uh, has a small team of people working across the UK, uh, doing big things at the local level to tackle climate change. Uh, registered foundation works in places like Bristol and elsewhere so very much look forward to hearing from from Hira Khan and then finally Nick Mollpil who is executive director of the Aldersgate group he's going to talk particularly about the contribution that businesses can make the Aldersgate group is a politically impartial multi-stakeholder alliance that champions a prosperous uh, net zero emissions and environmentally sustainable economy so leads on uh, their their work on sustainability issues and formerly uh, until recently head of climate change and energy policy at um WWF UK, so uh, really well qualified to talk about these questions for us too. So great lineup for you. Um, we're going to have a presentation from each of our panelists. Then we've got opportunity for Q and A. Uh, if you submit your questions in the chat function, we'll, we'll aggregate those up, and I'll I'll then uh, parcel them up and hand them out to our panel to to, to respond and to and to discuss. We've got until uh, 1.30, so plenty of time. Um, so do do ask a question um, uh, during the course of the the discussion and uh, when we've had our presentations. But I'll start, without further ado, by handing over to Vanessa by Kate, over to you. Thanks
2: very much, Nick. Yeah, I'm going to say a few words about our um, report, which was the first report of the committee, because we only were established uh, in April 2021. So our starting point was the twin crises, the ecological crisis and the climate crisis. Uh, and the fact that the government had set targets for reaching net zero and were about to, uh, well certainly in the Environment Act said they were going to set targets to address the environmental and ecological crisis, although as we've seen in recent weeks, they haven't quite got around to doing that. Um, but nevertheless, they are, you know, obliged to have targets for the ecological crisis. But they've been far less focus um, in policy and, and political terms around the changes that were going to be required to people's lifestyles. And our starting point was the Climate Change Committee had said that 63% of the emission reductions by 2035 were going to be requiring some form of public involvement. Now, they had quite a wide definition of public um, involvement. It included things in, around public consent to uh, local authorities making decisions. So we started from that, that starting point that there's a crisis. It needed behaviour change and lifestyle change, and it was a high percentage and t- in terms of the Climate Change Committee's analysis of what was needed and we sat down and said right okay well what's going to be our definition of behaviour change, what is the evidence about what is acceptable and what is the public appetite for this, what are the government actually doing um, and what's the evidence of what's best practice so that was our starting point so in terms of those four things we took as our definition um getting people to adopt new technologies and accept new services and products, as well as uh, making changes which would mean they adopted less carbon intensive lifestyles. I have to say that definition was not without serious debate. House of Lords committee is representative of all political parties and none in the Lords, which is one of its strengths, Uh, and we have one member uh, who's well known uh, for his views, Um, who rightly challenged us on what the definition of behaviour change was. That was the definition we took. We felt that was the appropriate thing to do, because even if you're adopting new technologies like electric cars, there are going to be lifestyle changes. I mean, they cost more at the moment. Equally, they're not as uh, flexible as your average uh, diesel car. So we thought that was an appropriate definition, adopting new technologies and cutting uh, carbon intensive consumption. And from that, we identified the figure of it being required, there was a 32% of the emissions reduction by 2035, which would have to come from people changing their behaviours. So it's a new figure out there and a significant figure. It effectively means a third of the changes by 2035 are going to require lifestyle changes. So that's really significant. So the second thing we, we looked at was, you know, well, what's the public appetite for this and all the polling evidence we had um and i'm sure lorraine may go on to say something about this as well who was a fantastic special advisor if i might say to our committee the people were very clear that they wanted obviously they're very committed and concerned about climate change but they wanted government leadership that they were absolutely clear on where there was a slight degree of, of i suppose less clarity was when you got around to the granular issues around particular policy areas and we'll i'm sure come on to that in some detail but the other thing they wanted other than leadership was fairness. They were very clear, all the pollings very clear, that people believe that those people who have the largest carbon footprint should make the largest amount of changes and that will therefore impact on political policy making and some very tough decisions around taxation and fairness around taxation Uh, and that was an issue we did pick up and we made some um, specific recommendations about tax changes which reflected fairness particularly in the context of frequent flying for international flights. Uh, We also looked at what works because I think as a House of Lords Committee we're expected to base our views on the evidence, rightly so, so we had evidence from around Europe, uh, further afield Japan and also academics and what was very clear was it required two things, it requires clear communication, you know public engagement and communication absolutely paramount uh, and making clear what the co-benefits of making these changes are, not just for the environment, but also for people's health, their well-being, in the same way that during the COVID pandemic there was really clear communication about what was needed and why what you were doing was helping the NHS. So there were some very clear parallels, and we looked in detail at what were the parallels. and we could draw some parallels from the COVID um, inquiry, uh, sorry the COVID um, uh, pandemic, which were helpful for our inquiry. But we also found, yes, education was important, but it's not enough on its own. The government has to use all the policy levers at its disposal. It has to use regulation, which I'm sure something that Nick will come on to talk about business will be absolutely clear. We need a level playing field to make sure that the businesses can move forward uh, and the businesses which are making the uh, progress in terms of adopting um, and producing new green products have a, a stable and clear regulatory framework. Fiscal incentives and disincentives need to be used and there needs to be consistency across policy. So communication, but also policy right across the board from the government. Uh, And then we looked at actually what the government was doing and we were quite lucky because soon after we started, the government launched its net zero strategy, which I think I would characterize as behaviour light. There's quite a lot in there in terms of what they're going to do in terms of net zero, but very, very light on what it wants to say about behaviour change and it set itself six principles which bluntly the government have not delivered on it set itself six principles to present a clear vision to the public about what they should be doing well it's failed that clear regulatory signals again don't think we've seen those to make the greenest choice the easiest and most affordable well again don't think we've seen any of those but the bottom line was it was all about this this line of going with the grain of consumer choice I think that's the fundamental issue. It's become an issue of ideology. Ideology is driving current policy in this area because it's all about what is perceived as not wanting to tell people what to do. Uh, And whereas previous governments have seen there's a need to tell people what they can, then go and choose themselves to do, this government perceives it very much as something that they don't want to step on uh, the, the freedom of the individual. And it's meant, although we've seen some changes in terms of supporting electric cars obviously with the very welcome um, uh, banning um, of in 2035 of uh, fossil um, of diesel cars that's really good and initially some grants and obviously we've got the boiler upgrade screen other than that there's very little policy that the government has has done in this space because of that ideological fear uh, and we also look to the machinery government that how government is actually Coordinating its policies because it's no good saying to a member of the public, "We think it's about time you um, insulated your home," because of the huge impact that homes have on um, carbon emissions. If government's still allowing new homes to be built which aren't efficient, I mean, people just note the you know the disparity, and um, people need to have a consistent policy framework. And the machinery of government isn't working. So, I just wanted to say a couple of reflections about what we concluded that government should do now. Firstly, we concluded it had to refresh the net zero strategy. The fact that it is so behaviour light is not absolutely appropriate. And clearly, um, Chris Gibmore at the moment is doing a net zero review. Uh, he came before our committee last week. We, we submitted some views to him and he came before us last week. And I have to say, I'm not sure we're entirely heartened that behaviour change is going to get the, the focus that it needs to if the government's going to meet its own emission and environmental targets. Um, it needs to absolutely as a first priority invest in a public engagement campaign other uh, nationalities uh, and indeed uh, Scotland has already uh, introduced one we can't get people to work on behaviour change unless they know what's needed Uh, so they need to invest in that in the way that they invested and were the largest advertisers during the COVID pandemic. It was a very salutary statistic we had in our inquiry that the, it was the government that was spending the most money during that time telling people what was needed. If you want people to do things, you have to give them the information. Thirdly, the government needs to be much better on data. I mean, if, I always go on the maxim, max in what me, what's what measured is mattered. And at the moment, government's not doing enough in terms of measuring the data in this area. So they need to do a lot more and we had a very interesting um, uh, uh, conversation with the chief scientific officer about the role of, a, of ONS um, and Bayes in improving data in this area. It needs far more to work with the partners that are out there. We know that the government needs to change its policy. But as I'm sure Nick and Hira will be saying, it can't do this without local communities. It, most of behaviour change is place based. People need to be involved, they need to be engaged, and it won't happen unless business is on the same page. So that's absolutely critical. Uh, And then two other quick things. It needs to rewire the machinery of government. I mean, I don't know how many of you noticed. I'm sure most of you did. But the new cabinet committees now don't include the Climate Action um, Strategy Committee or indeed the Climate Action Implementation Group. They've been scrapped and a lower level cabinet cabinet committee, which is being chaired by Oliver Letwin is now in place. The fact that the prime minister is no longer chairing a committee, which is looking at um, coordinating domestic and international climate and environmental policy is a major step backwards, particularly in the context of behavior change, which relies on that continuity across policy areas. You can't have the housing department doing one thing. and know the transport department doing something else so that i think is a major major worrying point and i'll just finish on the other thing which um, i'm not so sure that the other members may um focus on which is about if we're going to succeed in getting to that figure of 32 percent of behavior change yes it's going to be about policy but it's also going to be about the the debate Uh, and since we launched our report i mean i've now been called um, a member of the anti-coalition group a puritan and it's become very ideological and driven and very divisive um, and I understand that you know it's touching on people's lives but it, in the same way that we managed to get the Climate Change Act or the Labour government did it was you know it was cross-party everybody agreed that this really had to happen for me we are not going to be able to solve the behaviour change issue and get people you know doing making the changes to their lives that we know we need to unless we can frame a public debate which 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 sells the less but better argument to them. Thank you.
1: Great, thank you very much indeed, Kate. That was a really comprehensive and, and clear setting out of the agenda uh, of your committee and, and the things that need to change. I, and I was very struck there by the last point you make that um, uh, h- how far individual and household, behaviour change in particular, depends on a broader set of societal commitments, a sense of social purpose societally, and how far that is imperiled by ideological division over action on climate change and how far, uh, if it's structured into ideological opposition, whether that change is possible. But that's something I'm sure that Lorraine will want to come to. So I'm going to ask um, Lorraine to speak next. Over to you, Lorraine
3: thanks very much nick and i'll just uh, share a few slides to illustrate some some of my points so I, I i was very privileged to be um uh to support this inquiry and um i'm just delighted about how many of these recommendations are um aligned with a lot of the things that we're doing within our center the center for climate change and social transformations and um we're absolutely about essentially trying to um, build the evidence based on uh, how to change behaviour to uh, reach net zero and to change society more widely. Uh, as as we've heard, technological change is not enough to to get to to net zero. And actually, one of the one of the figures that I find quite striking is just the scale of behaviour change that is needed. Um, So we need to get to, uh, uh, we're at about eight and a half tonnes of CO2 per person at the moment. That's the average UK carbon footprint. We need to get to two and a half tonnes in the next, well, seven and a bit years. Um, So we need really pretty radical sorts of behaviour changes. And while the focus of the Uh, House of Lords inquiry was more on the sort of consumer side of things that what consumers can do to change their behavior and that's as we've heard about a third of the emission reductions needed. Most of the rest of what's needed will require some degree of behavior change by people in other contexts. Um, So, for example, within the professional sphere, so what we do within the workplace, what business leaders what 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 societal leaders do what we do within communities um, and as citizens. But the good news is um, the public is on board, actually, very broadly speaking. So from the government's own polling shows that we're at more or less a a record high in terms of climate change concerns. So about 84 percent of the public saying they're concerned about climate change and actually similar levels, about three quarters, saying that if individuals like me do not act now to combat climate change, we will be failing future generations. So people do feel that they should be changing their behaviour and playing a part in the net zero transition. But there are barriers, as as we've heard, um, uh, and that came out of the inquiry, And, and there are many barriers. Some of these you could say are at the individual level. So they uh, individuals don't necessarily have a good sense of the scale of change that is going to be required to reach net zero. There is a sense that maybe a bit more recycling, bit, a bit of saving energy, maybe reducing plastic might be enough. And that's partly because a lot of the campaigns that we've had historically are, are focused on those rather smaller scale behaviour changes What's absolutely needed now is cutting down on driving, flying, changing diets, much bigger sorts of behaviour changes. And there isn't good awareness amongst the public about the the, the scale of uh, change required or about actually what's going to be most effective. So we know that there isn't good awareness about the, the need to change diet in particular, for example at the individual level you could also wrap in other sorts of more psychological barriers people tend to sort of focus on the here and now and they have other things they're worrying about and in a cost of living crisis of course that's that's particularly maybe focusing on sort of financial worries that that they have although as we as I'll come on to there are often win wins here so actually reducing Consumption reducing energy use can reduce um, bills as well as help mitigate climate change. So we need to focus on some of those, those co-benefits. Maybe harder to address are some of the wider social, structural, economic sort of barriers. Uh, b- very broadly speaking, often it's more expensive or very inconvenient to choose a lower carbon option relative to a higher carbon option. And so we this is why we need governments to intervene to reduce or remove those barriers. and we also need business and communities to play their part too. Um, and as I'll, as I'll mention, engagement is really important. We need to bring people with us uh, because we know that imposing solutions on people doesn't work. One of the um, useful distinctions that that we use, but also was uh, mentioned in the inquiry report, is the difference between downstream and upstream ways of changing behaviour. Downstream is where you're trying to influence individuals' choices directly. So this is usually information provision. So you persuade people to um, choose a lower carbon option, and that might be through labelling or a campaign of some kind. Um, It might use more sort of social Uh, influence type approaches but what we know is that these tend to be relatively ineffective They, they play a part but by themselves they often are not enough to actually get people to change their behavior often because of these wider barriers that I've mentioned so what we need is more upstream types of approaches this is where you're actually influencing the context in which people are acting Um, so you're actually making it easier and cheaper for people to do the right thing and they do want to do the right thing, but it needs to be uh, a a more natural choice for them to do that so we need economic incentives and disincentives we need regulation, we need changes to the built environment, and these sorts of approaches tend to be far far more effective. and those sorts of measures, of course, as I mentioned, do require government, government policies to, uh, to, to, to implement some of those things. Um, and this, this figure comes from some fairly recent polling we've done with Ipsos Mori to try and ask the public, what do you, do you support or oppose uh, various net zero policies, which would have implications for people's lifestyles, so they imply behaviour change? And there are various ones here, but the, the, the one that was most popular was frequent flyer levies. And in each case, we gave them a short description of what would be involved. And there is broad support for that. And I think that is partly because, as um, Kate has mentioned, there is fairness embedded here. Actually, it's the polluter pays principle. You pay more um, in, in levies for every flight that you take because you're polluting more. The polluter p- pays and because higher income people tend to, to fly a lot more so there's 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 some level of fairness baked into that policy and that might explain why that's more uh that that is partly more supported um and you can see that many other sorts of things like changing product pricing to reflect environmental impacts phasing out gas boilers electric vehicle subsidies and so on all of these sorts of things are 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 more supported than they are opposed but as we've already heard actually the net zero strategy is light on behavior change and I'd go further to say that in the forward it's very explicit that there is no will whatsoever to change behaviour, actually, because there is an assumption that behaviour change implies sacrificing quality of life, that it's about hair shirts, that it's about guilt, um, and that actually technology uh and the creative power of capitalism uh, uh, is, is all we need. And actually the evidence doesn't bear that out. Not only is technology alone not going to be sufficient, but also um actually, the evidence base shows that a lot of the behavior changes that we're talking about to reach Net zero will actually benefit well-being. So this is really important, I think, because this helps to communicate um and and persuade people about why behavior change um, is needed uh, because actually we know that communication is most effective when it targets what people care about, for example health, well-being, what's good for their family, Etc. Um, and we also know that people that have greener lifestyles very broadly, so a lower carbon footprint, tend to have higher well-being. This comes from some uh, evidence uh, that, that we've done across lots of different countries, including the UK, that shows this positive relationship. And so actually going green is not actually about sacrifice. Far from it. It tends to improve people's quality of life. So I think this is quite an important um piece of evidence that hopefully persuades that behavior change is not something that we should shy away from. As I mentioned, it isn't only about information. We do need this change of context. We need to change physical infrastructures. We know, for example, that reallocating road space away from cars uh, and expanding the space available for, say, walking and cycling Um, can significantly cut car use because it makes it harder to drive and it makes it much more easy, safe, attractive, etc. to walk and cycle. So those sorts of physical changes really help. Economic measures, of course, uh, can also be very powerful. We've seen some of that happening in Germany recently with their public transport uh, discounts. um, And we know from the evidence on congestion charging that that can be very effective too. But... We do also know that we need we need to bring people with us and fairness needs to be really baked into these sorts of solutions. So um, actually having deliberative approaches, we heard in um, uh, as part of the inquiry, we actually returned to some of the people that took part in the Climate Assembly UK uh, to ask for their reflections on that process, but also on what government's doing uh, subsequently to to that. Um, and it's really important. I think they they emphasize the importance of fairness within that process and within many of these deliberative processes. So participatory decision making actually needs to be part of what we do moving moving forward to help build that social mandate for change. So summing up, we need to focus on those high impact behaviors that I mentioned. So it's not so much about the, the it moving people away from assuming that recycling and, and plastic reduction is enough to highlighting the fact that we need to focus on mobility food energy and consumption more widely an expanded definition of behavior change that thinks about the multiple roles that people have co-designing interventions with the public so that participatory approach that really achieve those co-benefits i mentioned including well-being co-benefits and moving more upstream so not relying on information provision but actually having um, uh, a wider set of policy instruments um, to change behavior. And I didn't elaborate on this, but actually when we intervene really matters as well. So getting the timing right uh, for when habits are disrupted, we've seen during COVID people change their habits overnight. And actually some of those things have uh, stuck. So we are doing more things online like this, for example. So actually capitalizing on disruptions that happen uh, to try to reconfigure habits is also very powerful. So I'll stop sharing now. Thanks.
1: Great, thank you very much indeed Lorraine. Uh, it's a fantastic presentation of um, the arguments in the agenda here and, and actually your focus there at the end on on participatory mechanisms, deliberative engagement and participation at the local level in particular is a very good segue for me into here's uh, presentation. Um, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning uh, works with possible as the head of car free cities and work at a grassroots level to see, uh, that change that Lorraine mentioned of making it better to walk and cycle easier to walk and cycle and to make cars obsolete so Hira over to you.
4: Thanks very much Nick um I think I've got Laura sharing my slides uh, so that will start in one moment um there we go so At Possible we want to see a zero carbon Britain built by and for everyone and we want to achieve this by inspiring people in the UK to take the action the climate crisis demands and you know as we've just been hearing the sheer scale of the action required means it's going to touch everyone's lives Uh, If we're going to move at the speed required, uh, and if we're going to ensure the new world that we build is a fair one, we have to bring everyone along, you know, people and communities need to be involved. Politicians, corporations and other established institutions have a key role to play too, but they'll only move fast enough once they know their constituents and customers are on board. So the climate crisis is a collective action problem, and people are fundamentally social beings. So wherever possible, we work to bring people together to take action as both citizens and consumers through a lens that makes clear that they're a part of something bigger than themselves. So as as we've been hearing, the UK's decarbonisation success to date has asked very little of the public, but further progress relies on this changing fast. A powerful expert consensus has emerged around the need for action on the demand side, the social factors that drive consumption and greenhouse gas emissions, with around two-thirds of the carbon cuts needed in the first half of this century, depending on collective behaviour change at an epic scale. Individual consumption patterns are largely a product of the choice environment in which they take place, so changing established behaviours means changing the menu of available options. Meanwhile, the British government remains reluctant to engage the public meaningfully around the societal implications of meeting their own climate change targets. Success in the fight against climate change therefore requires a mass movement that integrates rapid change at the personal, social and structural levels. And everything possible does is ultimately aimed at increasing meaningful public participation in climate action at home, in our communities and workplaces and in political engagement too. So there's two key audiences that we uh, focus on. The first is people with high carbon lifestyles and the means to reduce them. So on the global scale, this group includes most, but not all people in the upper half of the UK income spectrum, many of whom also registered the highest levels of public concern around the climate crisis, as well as their disproportionate responsibility for lifestyle consumption emissions. This group also enjoys disproportionate levels of agency over solutions as high socioeconomic status equates directly to influence as agents of social, political, and economic change. Those with high social capital can leverage this for the collective interest, extending solidarity to those with less capacity to act, and we can help to guide them into this role. There is therefore both a moral and a pragmatic case for this audience to lead demand side changes as change here will deliver the greatest impact in both direct emissions reductions and in changing the conditions in which the rest of society are making their own consumption choices. And then secondly, the people who are currently underrepresented in the climate movement and policy debates. So this broad group includes many communities in the UK whose voices are seldom heard in climate discourse and who may also be at higher risk of being adversely affected by unintended consequences of poorly designed changes to energy and transport systems. The cost of living crisis now escalating is likely to dominate public concerns over the coming years and the enemies of climate action will be using every trick in the book to conscript these concerns into opposition to climate policies. Again, there's both an ethical case and a practical one for positive engagement with this audience group. So that's very broad strokes about possible and the way we work. But how about some examples of what we do and how we do it? And of course, I'm here to talk about car free cities. So the Car Free Cities campaign works in Birmingham, Bristol, Leeds and London and aims to bring to life a positive vision for our cities to move away from mass private car ownership. We want to take space away from cars and give it back to people and nature. We're clear a car free city is a city which is free of the dangers, pollution and emissions caused by mass private car ownership. It's not a city with no cars at all. We recognize there are many people, including some disabled people who can't get around without a car. And our aim of fewer cars on the road means more space for those who must drive and better cities for everyone. So uh, like what are, if I was to break it down, what are the kind of key things that we do? If I could get the next slide, please. Thank you very much. So the first thing we do is make the link between the climate and immediate issues to people's lives. Sometimes the climate crisis can seem very far away to people in Britain, although as unseasonably warm days like the ones we've been having become more normal, it's a lot easier to make the case. But nevertheless, for many people, the climate crisis does still feel like it's something over there. It's something to think about later. There are more pressing concerns immediately on their plate. I often say car three cities is about the climate crisis, but it's also about so much more. It's about the fuel crisis, the cost of living crisis, rail strikes, our health, feeling a sense of pride in our communities, these all intersect when we're discussing car-free cities. And talking about these issues is a way of engaging new audiences in a way that directly relates to them. As an example, our Going Car Free pilot in January followed 10 drivers, all with a variety of mobility needs, many of them parents, some of them disabled, as they hung up the keys to their cars without significantly changing their everyday routines for 21 days. And what we found is that most of our participants actually reduced their carbon emissions and importantly saved money. All participants reported using their cars less or using alternative modes for some journeys, with some even selling their cars. So the t- trial demonstrates how a short intervention to reorganize routines can create long term behavior change. If I could go to the next slide. Um, The learning and findings from that cohort informed our public going car free challenge, which had the key message that you could help reduce emissions, save money and become fitter and healthier by reducing your car use. 1000 people signed up and the post challenge survey showed that 98% of those who took part are planning on cutting their car use for good. Um, So that was going car free. Uh, the second thing that I think that we do is create opportunities for the silent majority to share their voice. Uh, I get to the next slide, please. Thank you. Um, ultimately, we believe that the majority of people want to live in cities where we can breathe clean air, walk around safely and feel connected to our community. And so despite some of the incredibly loud and divisive public debates around clean air zones, pedestrianization of high streets and low traffic neighborhoods. We look to provide the silent majority with opportunities to easily share their opinions. Lots of people are time poor, they can't attend events in the daytime or are unlikely to visit public places. There are multiple barriers preventing people from getting involved in these conversations, and one way to try to reach these people is going door knocking. So last summer, right in the middle of the uproar about LTNs, we recruited volunteers and went door knocking to survey 300 households across Birmingham, Bristol, Leeds and London to ask them their opinions of local historic modal filters. And we found that nine out of ten people love them. So before our survey nobody had considered asking people of historic filters for their opinions when they had been living with the results of the modal filter for many many years and so we also felt really vindicated when at the recent council elections by and large candidates who ran on an anti-LTM platform did not win and the councils that had been pushing for traffic reduction measures came out on top. Um, If I could go to the next slide Similarly, we helped roughly 5,000 people easily submit responses to the TfL's consultation on the expansion of the ULESS to all of London in 2023, so that the most polluting cars will be charged for driving anywhere in London. So Khan has said that this won't automatically go ahead if most responses to the consultation oppose the expansion, so we're looking forward to seeing the results of our efforts off the back of that. Uh, And if I could go to the next slide. And finally, we pride ourselves on being great storytellers. We're data-led, we're really good at communicating complex research in an accessible way, but we're also great at creating human-centered stories. And we walk that fine line between numbers and creative moments to deliver a campaign that feels very human. And a great example of this is our work on Parklets, which aims to popularize Parklets as a positive, people-centred approach to decreasing on-street parking and shifting road space away from cars. So for this, we've produced reports looking at how much space cars take up in our cities. We've launched our Parklet Plotter, which is an interactive map to help people learn about the areas they live in, from which communities have the least access to green space to how different areas measure up against the multiple deprivation index, and identify potential locations for a parklet with maximum social benefit. And we recently produced new analysis showing how car parking is subsidized and prioritized over public space but beyond all the data we also create events that bring people together connect communities and organizations and spark joy and hope for change can i get the next slide please thank you so for world car free day in uh, september for two years running we've organized pop-up parklets in our four cities We collectively attracted hundreds of visitors, several councillors come down to showcase their support, and we get loads of great press off the back of it. All of this is in service of calling for an easy parklet permit process in our cities, just in the way that people can apply for a parking permit. We've recently had some success. You know, Waltham Forest's first community parklet was installed in June as part of a 12 month trial so the council can test the permit process. And here's a lovely quote. From Toby Spearpoint, who's the resident who applied for the park put, um, talking about how great our campaign was in helping him achieve that. Uh, can I go to the next slide, please? And so finally, working on the climate crisis can be a doom-laden affair. It's no exaggeration to say that we're facing the end of the world as we know it whether we make change happen or sit back and let change happen to us, human civilization will be transformed almost beyond recognition over the 21st century. We're clear what a grave position years of inaction on the climate crisis has left us in and know that communicating this is part of our job as a climate charity but we're also clear that the solutions are there to be seized and we know it's also our job to promote these too. It's where our name possible comes from and our at our best we offer entry points to climate action that are like an invitation to a barn raising so we all roll up our sleeves we pick up the tools for the hard work but we'll be doing it together with friends and neighbours and there'll be food and drink and music and dancing and at the end of it all we can stand (laughs) back and admire the new barn we've built together we aim to find joy in the call to action thank you very much
1: great thank you very much indeed that's very inspiring and um I'm sure everybody watching would have felt exactly the, felt the same. And I think really importantly also foregrounding the, the role of experimentation, of local action, of the ability to make big changes flow from uh, actions that can be taken in a locality by relatively small groups of people um, and using experimentation to presage bigger change. So thanks so much indeed here. That was really excellent. Thanks a lot. So our, our final speaker is Nick Malthu from the Aldersgate Group. Nick, uh, over
0: to you. Thanks, Nick, um, and hello everyone. So um, I, uh, I head up the Aldersgate Group. Uh, just, but very brief, background: We're a cross-economy uh, business organisation that really makes the business case for ambitious climate and environmental policies. So we have around 65 member organisations. Uh, most of them are businesses, but we also have academic institutions and NGOs within uh, the group. And you know, with our members, we really try and look at how. Uh, policies that can effectively meet our climate and environmental goals can also actually help accelerate investment in innovation in new supply chains in job creation skills and new areas of competitive advantage for the UK so we absolutely do not see a contradiction between ambitious climate and environmental goals and a prosperous economy. And that's something that we've been working very hard uh, um, reminding successive governments in recent months. Um, so what I thought I would uh, do today, we, we fed into the uh, excellent uh, House of Lords uh, inquiry and really want to commend the, the, the report. And we focused in particular on the role of business. You know, what, what does business, uh, what's the role of business in driving behavior change? But also, where does business need help? So, what I was going to briefly do is, is just recap some of the areas where businesses have a role in driving behavior change and enabling behavior change. Mention uh, some of the limitations to what businesses can and can do, which tend to vary between sectors, uh, and then finish with a few suggestions of areas of intervention or priorities for for government going forward. Um, So starting with where does business have a role, I mean, there's no doubt that businesses have a huge responsibility in driving and enabling behavior change. So uh, that's absolutely clear. Um, And that's particularly the case for businesses that have a direct consumer interface. And that can be anything from water and energy utilities through to um, retailers uh, and well-known consumer brands. so there's a range of things that businesses can do but i think it needs to stop at the top you need to have a very clear sustainability strategy in place and to be concrete that strategy really needs to have a very clear and ideally science-based targets whether that's to do with climate through for example the um, science-based targets initiative uh, but, uh, but having other targets around resource efficiency around biodiversity restoration uh, and nature restoration are equally important and we're, we're very fortunate Old scale group to have uh, the vast majority of businesses who have such strategies in place and we do have eligibility criteria in the first place so we obviously work with, with the leaders in this space rather than the, than the laggards Um if you have a clear strategy in place that's already something that your consumers can feel and it takes you to a second place um, it, it, it allows you then to put to offer more sustainable products and more sustainable solutions to your customers and that's an area where businesses can do an awful lot um, businesses can do an awful lot both in terms of, imp- of proposing and making those products really accessible to consumers but they can do also an awful lot to try and provide those at a competitive price and in a way that's very clearly labeled and um, so we're seeing that with several of our uh, retail members such as ikea and kingfisher If you go in their stores, uh, so Kingfisher is the owner of the likes of B&Q, for instance, you go in their stores and you will see a wide range of um, products that are made, for example, secondary uh, materials or products that are made uh, to last longer, products that have much lower uh, energy consumption compared to standard alternatives on the market and clear labelling. Even in some difficult sectors like tyre manufacturing, we have members like Michelin who design tyres who by their design are meant to last two or three times as long as a standard tire but also are meant to be disassembled and reused to remanufacture other tires up to five times so that's the kind of product design work that businesses have the flexibility to to actually incorporate in their business models if they choose to to um to do so and again For those businesses that are really exposed to consumer interactions, uh, there's an awful lot they can do through information campaigns in their stores, through uh, the labelling they put together and making the most environmentally sustainable um, alternatives really easily identifiable in a store. So where where you place a product in your store, for example, has a huge impact on whether or not your customers are going to see it. So there's an awful lot in terms of product placement that businesses can can do. Um, I also think businesses have a huge role to play. And that came out a lot with the sort of business surveys we did as we responded to this inquiry. Uh, Businesses have a lot to do with uh, in terms of employee engagement. if you you have a clear sustainability strategy in place, you clearly communicate it to your employees. You then put your employees in the position whereby they understand what your business is is trying to do and they're better equipped to try and deliver it, especially if they are trained to advise uh, customers uh, on the the sustainability of different solutions and products. So in the construction sector, for example, uh, one of our members, Wilma Dixon, have a sustainability strategy which is actually the best I've seen in the sector. It's called Now or Never. I strongly recommend you have a a look at it if you're interested in corporate sustainability strategies. And as part of that, um, they've uh, run sort of awareness and training courses across the organization and 95% of Wilma Dixon and in an internal staff survey would say that they understood the objectives and understood their role in helping deliver those objectives. So that's the kind of thing in quite a complicated sector that you really want to see across, across the piece But there are, of course, limitations. Um, and there are um, a sort of identified four key limitations. Uh, the first one is, um, and, and Kate touched on it in the introduction the importance of having a level, a level playing field for more environmentally sustainable and resource efficient products. So we've seen a range. In, in some cases, you can develop a sustainable alternative at a very similar cost to something that's more carbon intensive that's on the market, and consumers will take it. But in other cases, such shows the tyre manufacturing sector, the more environmentally uh, perf- the, the product that performs better from an environmental standpoint will cost you more. So a company like Michelin, for example, will uh, have often sort of made the point to me that you uh, you tend to see that those uh, tyres that are there to last two or three times longer than low quality tyres that will tend to be imported from uh, Southeast Asia really struggle when it comes in both the B2B trade and trade with individual consumers because the upfront cost might be two or three times more. Uh, but actually over the over the or two times more the over the lifetime of the project consumers would be financially better off and environmentally better off if they, if they had purchased a more environmentally sustainable uh time so th- th- there's there's clearly a role there <coughs> for some kind of government intervention I'll will I'll, I'll go back go back there um on that point shortly uh, but we've also seen that in the b 2 b trade so uh, one uh, a major um tyre remanufacturer in the UK had to close down a few years ago and they they, they were focused on retreading uh, tyres for um, for heavy goods vehicles and they were reusing materials five times in, reman- in retreading this tires. so they were making a huge environmental savings as well as creating a lot of jobs in the UK but they got massively undercut around 2013 to 2015 by imports from China which were very low environmental quality single-use tyres and the whole sort of in an entire plant that was focused on remanufacturing went out of business as a result so it's a real there's a there's a real um issue here and if you want businesses to put more um environmentally sustainable products uh in uh, on the market especially in complex sectors you will often need underlying supporting infrastructure to allow them to do that so again sticking with the example of resource efficiency if you would like retailers, uh, um, tire manufacturers uh, and uh, other consumer brands to put forward products that are made of reusable recycled materials. You need the infrastructure in place to collect waste materials, to process them and then remanufacture them. And we we have too little of that. In fact, in the UK, we have a, a fairly significant problem of an enormous amount of very valuable scrap material being exported because we don't have neither the incentive or the infrastructure to collect those scrap materials recondition them and reuse them so we need to address that um, and when it comes to um I think driving behavior change um you know through through for better labeling I think this there's two issues that we have come across um when looking at different pilot projects that our members have um put forward and carried out one of them is inconsistency of labeling there are so many product types where there isn't a consistent way of labeling products that it create and leads to confusion. So a lot of well-meaning businesses will start developing their own labels. But the problem is they need to develop those labels in a way that is scientifically accurate, that is sufficiently simple that consumers can actually understand what they're reading, and doesn't contradict another label that somebody else equally well-meaning in the industry has come up with. So, so there's definitely a, a need for intervention there. and. Um, A point that's often made to me is that it's quite difficult to change behaviour without a degree of mandation or regulatory driver. So it's not that consumers don't want better environmental alternatives, an awful lot of consumers do, but there are some areas where you need to make it a lot easier for them. And that, that again, is an area for government intervention. So this leads me to my sort of, I guess, final section of what I wanted to talk about, which is where can government help business drive a behaviour change? Uh, I think for me that the first thing is around regulatory standards. And I think it really sort of um, backs up what Lorraine was saying earlier about upstream uh, interventions. Uh, If we really want to make it easy for consumers to purchase more sustainable products and solutions. Now, well, we need to make them the the default choice on the market. And that requires product standards that uh, require a minimum degree of energy and resource efficiency. Uh, The resources and waste strategy that we have in place is supposed to do that, but next to no progress has been really delivered on that for the last three years. So that's a really important area of intervention. And if we want uh, householders to use less energy in their homes, then uh, having energy, uh, regulatory-based energy efficiency standards that mandates that uh, all um, homes should be of a minimum level of energy efficiency, say EPC band C by the early 2030s, would be a really strong market signal to get the whole supply chain busy to try and and deliver that. And if you time that fiscal incentives that were timed at uh, moments where um, homeowners are open to disruption, which again goes back to what Lorraine was making, such as duty rebates, that you might find that you could really get the owner-occupier market to take energy efficiency retrofits a lot more seriously and really help them in improving uh, the state of their homes. that for me is a huge area of, of government intervention that we really need to see in the coming years. Uh, and if we can't do that at a time of cost of living crisis and high energy bills, I'm not sure when we're going to do it. Uh, the second area for me is around green public procurement. if we want consumers to make more uh, sort of sustainable choices but we the government should really walk the walk and through its own public procurement policy should um, uh, incentivize the the purchase of more environmentally sustainable and resource efficient uh, products, but also sort of um, infrastructure uh, delivery. Uh, That's something that has been talked about for for a number of years, but again, it's a complex area and one where we've seen very little progress. Labelling. Uh, The European Commission has recently been proposing a regulation to try and make uh, product labelling more consistent across different product types. Um, I know it comes from the EU, but I think nonetheless it'd be a good idea to keep an eye on it to see whether we can learn anything from it and maybe for the competition and market authority. Uh, help uh, develop together with industry some simple but meaningful um, labels for key product types to have the highest environmental impacts to again make it easier for consumers to understand what it is they're buying and what, are, what is the environmental implication of what they're they're purchasing. I think information campaigns, although that is downstream, I do think has a role, as long as you've got the right upstream interventions. I think that's something that's often seen as, oh, it would be nice to do if we had the money, but we haven't got the money, so we're not going to do it. I do think that sort of a combination of Bayes, DEFRA, and different uh, industry groups really working together to um, uh, not just uh, uh, help consumers understand the, the, the different solutions available to them, uh, to lead a more environmentally sustainable life, but actually making the business case to them, as Lorraine was making earlier, that actually if you do, if you adopt these better products and solutions, if you make these changes, you will actually be better off in terms of your overall well-being. I think that would be a really good idea, but it only works if you've made the right upstream interventions, where you've you've made the products and the affordability of those products and solutions as appealing as possible to consumers. So you, it all—it's all you know—you can't just focus on one intervention. You have to do—you have to take a holistic view of, of all of this, and. Um, the final area of intervention for me would be around disclosure. Um, the Treasury, about a year ago, put forward a quite good um, roadmap on green finance, uh, which is uh, and um, which is all around uh, introducing something called the sustainability disclosures requirement. And what that's supposed to do is to get uh, businesses to explain not only how they what what their exposure to climate change is, but also how they are contributing towards climate change, and to disclose this every year. And the treasury also committed to introducing a requirement called a net zero transition plans, whereby businesses have to explain, uh, well, here's our contribution to climate change and here's what we are doing to reduce that contribution and and get us to a point where we are truly net zero emission by or before 2050. Now there've been rumors that this may get slowed down or um, the government may not want to go ahead with those. I think it's absolutely critical that we go ahead with that because good reporting and disclosure really then helps consumers and the public more generally understand what different businesses and financial institutions are doing and the the financial institution bit is important because when we talk about behavior change and we talk about consumers we tend to focus more on consumers buying products but actually one of the biggest interactions between consumer and businesses is actually a relationship between a pension fund and banks and their savers. And savers want to know where their money is going and what the env- the overall environmental impact of their savings is and how and how risky their investments are in a world where you know, extreme weather events are becoming more common and so on. So I think that's an area of intervention that the government must really sort of press ahead with. Uh, so there's all my sort of I guess overall thoughts, the only the sort of one concluding point I wanted to make is whilst recognising that businesses clearly have a very important role in in driving behaviour change and, and must really live up to that responsibility, there is a huge role for government leadership. I don't think you can get around that. And the net zero strategy, which Kate touched on earlier, needs to be uh, reviewed and improved over the next six months. And that review is absolutely critical, arguably more important than a Chris skinmore review because there are a number of gaps in the net zero strategy. Uh, There are huge gaps when it comes to buildings, and we touched on that earlier, but there's also huge gaps in hard to treat sectors. So when you're looking at uh, decarbonizing sectors like steel, like cement or long distance transport, those require huge capital investments, and there is no way these investments are going to happen without clear public policy and targeted public funding to really help businesses um, invest in the the low carbon sort of uh, alternatives that we need them to invest in to give us those low carbon choices. So I think that's an area where uh, the pressure must be kept up on government.
1: Great, thank you very much indeed, Nick. We bring back gallery here. That, that's great, Nick. Thanks very much indeed. So you raise a whole set of questions there really about some um, capital investment regulation, institutional reform. I think at the end, indicating perhaps that uh, in some areas this is not about making markets work better it's about industrial strategy to shift markets in completely new directions and perhaps also in some areas where you need public ownership because private ownership will not allow you to deliver what you need And mean that's perhaps a discussion we can uh, have in the course of the debate we've got about um, half an hour now to do that there are some questions already in the chat um, I haven't caught up with all of them but I, I, there's a few that I wanted to start with with our panelists um, and the first is a clutch of them that relate to uh, rural areas, and I think it mention made by I think Catherine in the chat of uh, climate assembly in Devon, and the kind of key issue for people there being that um, uh, car use is, you know, is almost mandatory for some people because the public transport infrastructure is so poor. The buses are very, very poor, and making the transition towards getting out of cars requires that infrastructure to be in place. So you're in a kind of chicken and egg situation. And others, I think, also asking those questions about. Uh, how do you make progress on these questions in, in rural areas where connectivity is weaker, where uh, bus services and others are unreliable and where then people require a social infrastructure to make the behaviour change? Perhaps I could ask our panellists to address, address that one first, because I think in each of your own areas, you you, you touch on these, these issues, but perhaps just f- focusing very directly on that question of rural populations uh, in the UK. Kate, can I ask you to go first and then perhaps Lorraine?
2: Absolutely. No. Well, people in rural areas have exactly the same needs as people in urban areas, but they have to have different solutions because of scarcity in terms of space, the geography, and they need to be locally tailored. And one of the things that none of us really touched on as much as we perhaps needed to as well in the context of this debate is the role of local authorities in actually Mm. uh, coming up with solutions which are, Right for people in the geography that they are in. Um, and picking up the point that Hira said, it are actually ones where people are engaged in the debate, where people are actually part of, a part of the solution. So I think, think all of us recognise that you know, the needs of rural people are the same, but they're going to have to have different solutions. The government has a role in coordinating and resourcing local authorities, because at the moment there's been a real gap in terms of resourcing and coordination with local authorities I mean they've only just set up their net zero forum after promising it in the net zero strategy but I think if you talk to any local authorities as we did during the process of our inquiry no one thinks that that's that job is being done properly so I think there's an issue for government to work better with local authorities for them to be resourced so that they can actually come up with the solutions which will be very different for people in rural areas
1: yeah thank you very much Kate and Lorraine
2: yeah, absolutely. I, so I think it's it's important
3: to sort of reflect that the behavior changes that will be needed will are are, are different across different groups. And I think here here it also touched on kind of socioeconomic differences and the fact that you know people with um, higher incomes have much bigger carbon footprints. So we also need to be kind of thinking about that. But the geographical, the spatial dimension is also very important. So having those 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 multiple and tailored solutions is crucial in terms of. Um, in terms of rural areas we've done work now in in with scottish government and we're doing work with cornwall council as well looking at how we can change travel behaviours across both urban and rural areas and actually while it may be true that it's in some ways easier to change people get people out of cars within urban contexts although it's not without its challenges it is more difficult within rural areas but it's not impossible actually so some of the things that scottish government uh, for example are doing are looking at you know how to combine trips so that you don't necessarily need to take the car so often to go out. Uh, that maybe you try to do things a bit more locally if possible, if there are local services, uh, being provided that you do things online where possible, if that is um if if an online alternative is available. E-bikes, e-bikes is a solution that that uh, Cornwall Council is really um uh, championing in terms of trying to get people out of cars onto alternatives that are uh you know that might work in rural areas. Um, so I think there are solutions that maybe don't rely on the car so much, but agree that maybe cars and hopefully electric cars in particular uh, increasingly are are, are less a part of it than than in the
1: past. Great, thanks, Lorraine. Kiro, can I ask you about that question too?
4: Yeah, I was I was just going to come in, and I um, agree with everything that Kate and Lorraine have just put forward. I mean, every time I talk about car free cities, of course, it's the natural question, you know, what are- about people in in rural areas and you know you're absolutely right the reason we're focusing on car-free cities is because one that's where the majority of people in the UK currently live and two it's the easiest way to get people out of their cars it, it fundamentally is harder to do that in in rural areas but as Lorraine just said it's not impossible um, and what I would always come back to is the fact that the, the 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 way the land the lay of the land at the moment is uh because of policy decisions you know we've decided that the this is the way we wanted our society to be structured and therefore we live in this society where some people are locked into car ownership if we want to reverse that it is policy that will get us out so rather than having these huge road building schemes how about we invest in you know cycle infrastructure how about we invest in buses instead of cutting public transport um in, in across the board that goes for urban areas as well as rural areas um so it, it, it is difficult it is more difficult in rural areas but not impossible and the, the only other thing that i would add is um within the report within you know cop you know last year as well and probably this year there was a lot of focus on technology and electric vehicles but i think what that's missing is how electric vehicles are might reduce you know uh the co2 emissions but still have impact on air pollution in terms of particulate matter still is just a really inefficient way to to kind of Build our cities and have people move around. You know, it does nothing for public health in terms of uh, uh, activity, crisis, and 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 kind of sense of community as well, connecting people. So, I would say, uh, you know, I think everything that can be electrified should be electrified, particularly in rural areas. But EVs can't be the answer.
1: That's a very important debate to be had. Do we want to move away from cars rather than simply electrifying them? Um, and over to you, Nick. I think you wanted to come as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I just agree with this point that, you know, basically you need a holistic transport solution, not just, uh, you know, replacing like for like. But I think just a broader point on rural communities, I think we really need to learn uh, from what happened in France with the Gilets Jaunes crisis. An awful lot of the opposition to uh, President Macron's move to impose a carbon tax, basically, on petrol and diesel cars in France stemmed from rural communities. And that and the reason it's stemmed from rural committees is they felt that they were being penalized for traveling long distances because they have further to travel to go to work to connect to urban infrastructure in cities. So I think uh, the when it comes to to driving behavior change in rural areas you've really got to come forward with a uh, very clear communication package proper participatory decision making as Lorraine was talking about. and. The whatever disincentive that you might introduce really has to come hand in hand with a, a credible and realistic replacement solution, whether that be, uh, for better public transport, a degree of uh, the, the minimum infrastructure required to provide. You know, to make electric vehicles a, a genuine possibility for those who still need to to travel by car and active travel support and so on. But you really need to sort of um, make sure that the, the solutions is you know is part of the overall package. Otherwise, you will have a backlash. Okay,
1: thanks very much. Um, so uh, there's a couple of questions here on on community, communicating co-benefits and particularly to Lorraine, uh, reference to recent studies. Uh, In the climate, you know, shared in the climate change sector, uh, suggesting that co-benefit narratives may not be the most powerful for mass public communications, Um, uh, and asking, do you see a difference between communicating co-benefits in a more local, smaller scale 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 way than compared to national level comms? So, I just a question, probably, Lorraine, that you're very familiar with, but can you just answer that point? I mean, is it beneficial Mm. to argue for the co-benefits of climate action or or not? And are there different ways of doing it, local, national?
3: yeah i mean that there's a i think there's a growing evidence base here um i mean more generally we know that communication works better when it targets what your audience cares about that's sort of you know the a staple of marketing i suppose uh, as well and um so the more you can kind of get to know what drives and motivates your audience and sort of target that then the more they're likely to listen and it's a, you know there's a lot of information we are bombarded with every day so it is about cutting through um so I think I, I wonder if that is maybe the question is sort of saying, to what extent should we focus on the co-benefits instead of climate change? And, and so I can definitely see there's a, you know, th- th- there's a debate to be had there, because I do think the government, for example, needs to be having a very explicit focus on climate change as part of their engagement strategy. They need to be saying there is a climate crisis, we need to be transitioning very rapidly. And there is a role that you as individuals and organisations have to play. And this is how you do it, etc. And and paint a very positive, inspiring vision, I think, of where we're going, and give people a sense of efficacy and agency to be part of that. And that needs to be explicit about climate change, absolutely. um, And and how we can effectively tackle it. But I think um, we also need to be saying that we that there are wider benefits of doing so and and that could be perhaps that's that's the sort of thing that could be emphasized more locally given as we've said that solutions will be ta- tailored locally and so it may be that in a particular locale then you'll have much bigger air quality benefits for example of changing travel patterns than somewhere else say say in a rural area so that those co-benefits probably will differ locally and so it makes sense to kind of tailor those messages but i think the evidence is sort of there that Actually, the more we did a study, for example, looking at um, how to communicate the benefits of reducing meat consumption. And we found that if you combined an environmental message and a health message, it had a more durable effect on reducing people's red meat consumption. So I think the more you can sort of say there are multiple reasons to do this, the more you can probably bring together lots of audiences to, to listen to that.
1: Great. Thank you, Lorraine. Um, Kate, I just wanted to come back to you on your point about local government, the very important point you make about um leading to resource local government effectively, needing to ensure it has the powers required to be able to take the actions uh, necessary. There's a question here though, about um, if you like the sort of climate change commitments of parish and district councillors, town councillors and others. Um, it, you know, if you need behaviour change, you also need politicians that are going to, you know, if they're elected, to want to lead that change at a, at a local level. Um, is there any sort of, anything you see? I mean, you've got a lot of experience of this, you know, anything you see as being so necessary in this area, um, you know. If you give local government more power, more fiscal powers, more uh, responsibilities, um, you know, g- g- how can we ensure that politicians uh, use those powers
0: effectively?
2: Well, there's two ways. First of all, you can give them. I mean, the honest answer is you can give them duties,
0: um, mm.
2: and but at the moment, some of them already do have duties, but they're not sufficiently resourced to do it. So you can you can take the view that government can set the sort of the, the parameters. But it's absolutely critical that local politicians drive this. Um, and that's why, I mean, we're talking here a lot about, you know, uh, we talked a lot with young people um, who are clearly very concerned about climate change and want to see uh, the politicians doing far more. And one of the things I've been saying to them is actually what we need is you young people to actually being engaged in the political process, because at the moment there's a real risk with climate change the climate concern that young people have, that actually they're gonna be switched off from politics altogether because they think it's, you know, it it just can't solve the problem. Whereas actually what we need is young people thinking we need to go into local government and actually be part of the solution. So I think re-engaging young people in, which is, I mean, the perennial difficult thing, to try and re-engage people to think actually local government is the right thing for me. If I'm concerned about climate, then actually, you know, I'm gonna take this forward as part of my agenda to, to change things for the better. I think that's a really important point and one way to target young people's disaffection at the moment with what politicians are doing about climate change is actually saying, come on. You know, for some of you, it might be to go and join Extension Rebellion. For some others of you, it should be about thinking, become a councillor. I mean, I was a councillor at 21. So, you know, get on with it and make the change you want to
1: see very good um here can I just ask you I mean you, you know you talked in your presentation about helping people to lobby their councillors to respond to consultations you know to, to engage in their own campaigns I, I just wonder if you have any good tips on uh you know really being able to kind of ensure that uh, councillors in city areas in particular where you work you know take the actions necessary
4: um so I, I I would agree with Kate that I think local councils are crucial in this sort of uh puzzle that we're trying to, to, to put together here. Um, particularly in the cities that we work in, local councils have a lot of power, uh, particularly over the road space and, and sort of transport plans and, and, and the such like. Um, the problem is, as I said in my presentation, it often requires people to turn up to consultations that are happening you know sometimes during the day sometimes during, you know different people have different responsibilities it's all quite technical uh and there's so many consultations going on at the same time it's, it's it's almost consultation fatigue sometimes you can't expect everyone to get involved with everything so the key thing that we do is try to make involvement as easy as possible and I think that's what made uh, the Parklet Plotter such a great success is that you can go to the map just click a button where you would like a parklet. And there's a pre-filled form which you can edit and it'll send it to your counselor. You don't even need to know who your counselor is because there's a pre-filled form that will do that for you. Uh, and it's the same with the ULES consultation. It's actually, it was actually quite technical. If you don't know anything about the ULES, you don't, you know, you don't know what the system is or what the process is. We made it really easy for people to be able to fill it in. Um, But at the same time, I think it's an ongoing conversation that will work for some people, whereas for other people, it's not about filling in a form, they want to see tangible change in their communities and in their neighborhoods. And that's what makes Parklet so brilliant is that it is giving you know we're saying we're taking a parking space away but we're giving something back to so many more people, this is access to public space you're getting a garden you're getting seating, Uh, it it is about making those benefits more tangible to people. and yeah, I think I think local councillors do actually quite a good job in quite in quite tough circumstances. But we're all about supporting them with the with the data they need, with the messaging they need to, and 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 kind of say, saying to them, you know, you can go ahead. The public is on your side. And local council elections kind of showed that. Uh, anyone, not anyone. There were notable exceptions, how Hamlet's being one. But most people who stood on an anti-LTN uh, agenda did not get re-elected or w- w- get elected
1: into power and I think that says something yeah absolutely and there were very specific circumstances in town as we know um there's a there's just just to I'll mention it just because it's in the Q&A that Sean Ellis-Williams refers to um a tool that's being developed by my society to help citizens estimate the um uh, I, I presume the, the carbon footprints of contracts let by local authorities. So the public procurement point that Nick was making, and whether you can then uh, lobby to improve council procurement on the basis of transparency about the carbon footprints of contracts. So that seems very interesting. Um, Nick, there's a few questions uh, here related to the the issues you raised about uh, capital costs and helping people with the upfront costs of making the changes they need to see. Um, And, you know, we've had you know, over a decade now really sort of failure, uh, particularly on home energy efficiency, you know, green homes and those other kinds of um, mechanisms designed to help people with the upfront costs of shifting away from gas boilers and and making their homes more energy efficient. Um, I mean, is this something where we just need a completely different policy framework or or are there just things that are obvious that we're not doing uh, to enable people to, you know, get rid of their gas boilers
0: and to uh, invest more in their energy efficiency? Um, thank you. Well, I think more looking at sort of home and energy efficiency as a whole, I think we've known what the right framework is for about 20 years. It's just, we've never actually tried to implement it. And instead of implementing something that's uh, really comprehensive and long lasting, we've essentially resorted to a program of stop-stop grants, which are, had a degree of impact when you introduce them. And then the minute the, the cash runs out, Uh, The you know nothing else happens And you can see that actually if you look at the installation rates in 2012. And you then look at the home installation rates in in 2013 you'll see a 90% drop and there's a diagram that shows you that in the latest uh, progress report from the committee on climate change, so we have a major problem, I think that what what we really need is. um, There's an overall framework that has about sort of four key pillars. The first one is regulatory. We need to be absolutely clear what the regulatory ambition is when it comes to energy efficiency in homes, because there's no other way businesses will understand what the market opportunity is without it. So, um, you know, I would say, you know, social housing, you want to get everyone to PC band B or C at the latest by the early 2030s. And when it comes to owner-occupying homes, no later than 2035. But you need a very clear statement of regulatory ambition. You then need fiscal incentives so that the carrot, so to speak, to facilitate that transition, that can mean VAT rebates from home improvements. Now, interestingly, interestingly, the government did introduce one, except that the VAT rebate is only applicable if a professional. Uh, uh, installer uh, does your home energy efficiency improvement, even if it's something quite quite simple. If you if you if you apply the if you do the installation yourself, you're not going to benefit from the discount. So that's the kind of thing that needs to change. And um, stamp duty rebates, I think, are really critical for the owner occupier market. So you need those uh, uh, fisc- well timed fiscal intensive uh, um, incentives that work hand in hand with your regulatory drivers. You then need to um, I think a system of um, of certification. I think a big concern when it comes to heat pumps, when it comes to energy efficiency installation is people are not sure what the quality of the uh, of the of the work is so I think a labels that people can trust uh, are going to be really important and then for me a fourth pillar is really around having an information one-stop shop and that's where local authorities are so important as long as they are sufficiently well resourced to provide you with the information you need to understand when and how do I need to insulate my home when and how can i replace my gas boiler with an electric heat pump and what might the unintended or knock on impacts uh, be and you know actually what should i do about having the electric charging point if i want to move to an electric vehicle H- having a one stop shop with a, a trusted Uh, I guess source of information and local authorities tend to be really trusted by local residents is, I think, really important to make this fly and when it comes specifically to heat pumps, then I think, you know, as part of the incentives package, you need to look beyond just the incentives, I think a degree of of subsidy, especially at the moment, is going to be important to help with upfront costs. Um, uh, especially if it's i mean that, that's why i think the renewable heat incentive was not so badly conceived because you sort of you got some support and then you repaid the support as you saved on energy bills throughout the the, the, the duration of, of you using your heat pump so i think something like that as part of a really well structured regulatory certification and clear information framework can really help move the dial once and for all on on, on home energy efficiency
1: okay, great thank you nick that's very helpful um now i want to turn to a question that um Jackie Head has raised uh, towards the end of our chat about um, uh, airport expansion, but all, which is obviously an, an issue in, in Bristol, but also uh, more widely the, the, the issues that uh, both Kate and Lorraine touched on at the beginning about um, just transitions and uh, frequent flyers basically being responsible for very high per capita carbon emissions by uh, long distance and other flights uh, on a much more regular basis and whether we now need to just, you know give up, the, um, Jackie's question basically is to say you know why you abandon the idea that you're going to get uh, 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 you know different kinds of uh, fuel and actually just tax Flights and get people out of planes and get you know get them using other modes of, of transport, um, and particularly given the the contribution per capita contribution to carbon emissions that comes from flying frequently, um, perhaps um, Lorraine and then Kate, I can ask you to have a have a think about that question.
3: Yeah, thanks, Nick, and I'm glad this question has come up because I do think aviation and flying is one of the the most difficult areas really to tackle in some ways. But I completely agree. I mean, we've heard um, very clearly that we need government leadership and we need consistency. And so it doesn't make sense for the government to be saying that climate change is a priority and we have a net zero strategy. And then people seeing that that airports are being expanded and that that, that the uh, duty paid on domestic uh, aviation fuel is, is being reduced. That Policy was announced during COP 26 when we had the presidency of the UN climate talks. I mean, it completely mixed messages. And to be expanding airports, I mean, this seems like the lowest of all low-hanging fruits to me. Do not expand airports. Do not um, uh, do not invest in oil and gas. These these are things that we should just be doing immediately, and then we can go on to all these other really important things very quickly that we need to be doing. But it just seems absolutely a no-brainer not to be doing that, and then. Um, Yeah, I mean, of course, it's important to invest in uh, technologies like uh, uh, aviation fuel that is uh, less polluting. I think we need to be doing that. But in the meantime, we need to be encouraging people to be flying less and then investing that money that we get through something like a frequent flyer levy in sustainable alternatives and investing in the UK tourism industry. There could be lots of green jobs there. So I think there's there could be lots of
2: win-wins, but at the moment, there's just no progress.
1: Thanks, Dorian. Kate?
2: Well, can I absolutely echo what Raina said? The only thing I, I would add is that, and there are other countries out there who are taking these steps, which are going down well. I mean, Nick talked about the Gileadier where, where there was a bit of a backlash on some issues, but the, the French have now introduced a ban on flights across the country if it can be undertaken within you know, two hours by bus or by, um, by train, and it's gone down well. Um, and so you know, I think there is a real case that if the government is going to take forward this agenda of fairness, and I think it's, and Lorraine will shout at me if I've got this wrong, but it's, you know, 70% of the flights are taken by about seventeen percent of the population. It's an issue where you really need to show that um, those who have got, we're not saying people can't fly, we're just saying there will be an extra cost. And We saw with the plastic bag tax, actually, that when people could see the arguments for it, an increase in taxation, which is seen to be fair, actually works. So I think this is, as Lorraine has rightly said, low hanging fruit and other countries are tackling it, and so should we.
1: Right. Okay, there's one, there's a sort of, um, I mean, we're coming towards the sort of end of the time we have, and there's, there's sort of a, a bit of a thread running through some of the questions. I mean, I, I, I can't take each of them in detail because we've got too many, but uh, a bit of a thread running through some of them, which is, you know, how do you tell when something is basically greenwashing, when it's, you know, when one, what companies or governments or others are saying which is effectively greenwashing, um, and how do you judge that against information you get which you want to act on should act on which is genuinely about reducing your emissions or those of your household so I suppose this question of sort of you know filtering out uh what is ideology or what is corporate interest dressed up as uh, climate action uh from sources of advice information sources of um, uh, 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 genuine uh, guidance that you want to use to act on yourself, so that people can make decisions about things, which, um, you know, which is obviously very good examples of this, you know, come in, you know, sort of offsetting, you know, that you press a button to enable you to offset the cost of your flight, or offset this, offset that, which in, in reality then turn out not to be actually genuinely uh, reducing carbon emissions. So uh, perhaps you could say that the panel could just help us a bit with that question. Uh, as well, um, uh, before we come to the end of, of the session today, so uh, uh, I'll, I'll start perhaps with Nick on that.
0: Thanks, Nick. So it's a complex one, but I, I think for me, there's, there's two sort of um, uh, things that that spring to mind. The first one is really around uh, having much more of uh, far more effort being poured into uh, consistent labelling. Uh, for specific product types or or solutions Uh, that's something uh, where you know there's good evidence that actually businesses and consumers trust some independent certifications like FSC for example and to a degree MSC but there's not enough of those across key sort of product and solutions and that's why I think uh, bodies like the competitions and markets authority could have quite an important role in helping develop greenwashing proof set of labels so you could really understand when you're purchasing a service or a particular product how environmentally sustainable or not your your product is but closely linked to that I think it goes back to my point on reporting and disclosure Uh, what the government is consulting on what developing at the moment is a um a, a framework which would require businesses to explain what their contributions are to climate change and uh, how, what they're doing about it, especially through the net zero transition plan. Uh, I think get, really developing a robust framework here is gonna be important because that would require an annual basis, it would enable society to really uh, monitor the progress or absence of progress from different, different corporate players. Uh, closely linked to that, there's, there's a, another thing, important initiative that's happening at the moment, which is the development of the UK green taxonomy. it's it's an awful term that basically what it's about is developing a set of sustainable investment definitions to help uh, individual savers and bigger investment firms to understand what's a sustainable investment and what's not a sustainable investment. So again, that work's been delayed with all the political shenanigans in recent months, but really completing that work, I think would be important and trying to align it as much as possible with what the EU is also trying to do uh, on, on the same issue.
1: Great. Thank you very much, Nick. That's very helpful. Um, Kate, can I ask you to have a go at that question?
2: Well, I absolutely agree with Nick. It's around the issues of getting the government to take the lead on labelling. It's been far too slow. Um, mm. In fact, it's been far too slow on so many issues in the last sort of five years. Extended producer responsibilities, labelling, they you know, need to get much, much faster. Just on the issue of the um, UK green taxonomy, which Nick finished up with, uh, you know, I'm really worried. They're going far too slow on this, and they keep saying. I mean, the consultation on this was due at the beginning of the year, quarter one, um, and you know the markets need rapid signals, and if they're not getting rapid signals from this new government, then you know we really have to worry. So, yet consistent labelling, consistent disclosure, and then that should allow other actors like the advertising association and others to take steps to, to you know to stop some of these rogue companies that are undoubtedly at the moment still out there doing greenwashing.
1: Thanks, Kate. Um, Lorraine?
3: Uh, Well, agree. And um, I think the only other thing I would add is that while we absolutely need clarity on which green claims can be trusted, there's just that sort of slight caveat that obviously information by itself uh doesn't is isn't often enough to change behavior we also need those wider changes that we've talked about in terms of kind of enabling the price of greener products to be reduced but i think you know but i think that could be part of it because as as people kind of start to see which are the genuine claims then hopefully that might start to sort of create a bit of a shift and as well as an incentive within businesses as well to to innovate in that direction so yeah that's what i do
1: great thanks really And perhaps um, here I could just uh, give the last word to you. I mean, I've got just uh, uh, this or any other questions that that we may not have addressed that you want to tackle in the last couple of minutes that we have. I
4: mean, the one thing that I would add is um, the kind of being possible and trying to be positive. There is a silver, the, the slightest of silver linings with greenwashing is that it's no longer acceptable to say that, yes, we're polluting the world and we don't really care, um, which is why corporations are, are kind of doing this. Um, what we do need to do is ensure that uh the sustainable impacts that they claim uh are, are having the impact on the world that we want them to have i think there does need to be stronger uh uh regulations and stronger legislations around the sorts of terms that that are being thrown around um but also you know we do need to i think corporations and governments need to see that people care about these things and 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 that will make them do more it needs to be on the agenda um and hopefully that's
1: what we're all here to do. Great, thanks very much indeed, Thira, that's great. Um, well, um, uh, we're going to, I think, try and post in the chat the link to the House of Lords report, to the committee's report, so that um, uh, those of you who haven't read it yet or want to uh, get access to it can easily do so. So you can see all the recommendations there. So very recently published, and I think the government uh, is required, isn't it, Kate, to formally respond to the report. They have to respond they to do. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, that we'll see in that response precisely how they intend to, to uh, account for the challenges that have been proposed and the, the issues that have been raised. Uh, that's come up. So yes, you can click on that link now that Laura has circulated that should enable you to get through to the report, um, but uh, I just, it just falls to me really now just to say thank you very much indeed to everybody for participating today. We've had, um, uh, I think at one point, 140 of you on the call, so uh, it's great to see so many people engaging. Uh, with the event today. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. And, and do keep in touch with uh, the Lords Committee, with CAST, uh, with the IPR, uh, with the Ordersgate Group and with um, uh, Possible as well about all the work they're undertaking, There'll plenty of other events and d- debate and discussion happening in this space uh, all the time. So please do keep in touch with it. But um, I just want to finish by thanking here uh, for thanking Nick, Lorraine, and Kate Palmetter for their presentations and for answering all the questions so fully and comprehensively. So a big thank you to you all for uh, your presentations and answers today. Um, But uh, I think that's probably everything from me. Uh, Again, just to, to thank you all for participating and look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks very much indeed.